You can open your Bibles to the book of 1 John in the New Testament. You can go all the way to the end to the book of Revelation and turn back just a little bit and you'll get to 1 John. And we are in chapter 2 as we continue our series on the book of John. We're just going through this book, kind of one passage at a time, already entering chapter 2. Uh, the great uh, leader from India, Gandhi, said this once about Christians, or he's speaking to Christians. He says, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Another guy named Brennan Manning, this is a Christian writer, wrote this once, the greatest single cause of atheism is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. So what's the concern that these two individuals are expressing? What they're noticing is an inconsistency in the lives of Christians. That would be kind of the the nice way of saying it, inconsistent Christian living. The more blunt way to say it would be they're noticing that sometimes Christians are hypocrites. And that's a very common accusation that comes against the church and against Christians, isn't it? That Christians are hypocrites. In fact, a lot of people would say that might be the main thing that keeps them from becoming Christians. They hear Christians talk about Jesus and claim to know the truth, but when they observe their lives, the lives of Christians, they compare it to their own lives, and in some cases, they don't really see any difference. And so they think, if their lives are no different than my life, then why do I need their Jesus? This is common, commonly expressed by those outside the church. And this is exactly what John is addressing here in chapter 2 in these first six verses. The inconsistency in living among a lot of Christians when our uh, walk doesn't match the talk would be another way of saying it. And this makes us ask a question, and that is what does a Christian really look like or what should a Christian look like? Uh, We can't really evaluate how a Christian can be inconsistent in his or her walk as opposed to their profession unless we know the way a Christian is supposed to live and what a Christian actually looks like. Now, the Bible tells us a lot about that. Not everything about what a Christian is supposed to look like is in these first six verses, but there's a few key things here that we're going to look like, uh, look at, and one of the main issues in John's mind here and one of the main elements that should distinguish a person who is a Christian is that person's attitude towards sin. And so that's what we'll see here uh, in this passage. John is concerned with sin. And sin is something we talk about a lot here. And if you've been in the church all your life, you've probably heard a lot about sin. Maybe you're sick and tired of hearing about sin, but that's what John is going to point our attention to. um, That there are you know, different extreme reactions to sin. Of course, in the world, we have kind of a denial of sin or an indulgence in sin. Sometimes in the church, what we get is maybe talking too much about sin, and we find Christians overwhelmed with the conception of sin and carrying a lot of shame and guilt. But sin is at the center of this charge of hypocrisy. Basically, what people are saying when they criticize Christians is, You're supposed to be living a holy life, but what I see is a sinful life, and that doesn't go together. And so how do we respond 
to that. That's what we're going to be talking about here today. What is a Christian? Answering that question with this charge of hypocrisy in mind. So let's stand and read these first six verses. 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6. John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Lord, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One thing that we're going to be noticing as we continue through this book of John is that sometimes he gets very basic and elementary in the things that he says. Uh, a lot of what John wants to do is take us back to the basics. And that's certainly the case here. Some of the things I'm going to be saying to you, you're probably going to think, duh, I mean, everybody knows that. But give me some time here as I unpack why these things are uh, significant. What is a Christian? The first thing that we see here is a Christian is a person who resists sin. Okay, let's talk about that. Look at verse 1. It's very clear what John says here. He begins by saying, my little children. Uh, What an interesting way to begin this address Uh, John was an elderly man at the time that he wrote this, so that might be one of the reasons he's calling his readers children, but in any event, we get this sense of tenderness and kindness and warmth from John as he addresses his audience here. He's not scolding them. He's He's not angry. He's not trying to put them on a guilt trip. He says, my little children, you can hear the tenderness in his voice, and he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, this just seems like, again, the most obvious thing in the world to, to say. And, you know, a lot of people see Christianity as nothing more than that. Christians are just people who don't sin. And they're people who call on others to not sin. And some people think that's all there is to Christianity. It's just an effort to not sin. But there's a lot more to it than that. The reason that John is writing this is because, as I've been explaining the last couple of sermons, there is a particular heresy that was at work in the church at the time that John was writing, and that heresy was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was the belief that the human body and physical matter and the earth and everything created is actually tainted with evil. And the real goodness in us is just in our spirit and in our soul. And so salvation is found when our spirit and soul escape the body. And so the Gnostics also believe that there's nothing good about life on the earth, that all we're trying to do is get out of the earth and get to the next life. So they saw life on the earth as irrelevant, unimportant, trivial, and so in their minds it didn't really matter what you did on the earth, and it didn't matter what you did with your body. 
And so they would indulge in all kinds of sins, thinking it was not a problem because the only thing that really mattered was their soul and their spirit. And so John is saying this command here in verse one with that particular heresy or false false teaching in mind. Now in our day, it's a little different. Maybe Gnosticism isn't as prevalent today as it was then, but still we have this tendency in our day to undermine sin and deny it and kind of overlook it. And you know, even in the church it seems that there is sometimes this embarrassment about saying we're sinners and talking about sin. It sounds so puritanical, it sounds so old fashioned, it sounds so uptight you know, to be concerned about sin. And people will say, well, you know, don't, don't talk about sin that much because you know, if you do, it'll make you appear to be judgmental. And if you talk too much about sin, you're gonna make people feel guilty. And after all, the Bible says we're under grace and not under the law. And so do we really have to even worry about it that much? And I've been in churches where they talk about sin a lot and it was a legalistic church and there was no grace there and it was rigid and there was no love there. And so let's not talk about sin. And in fact, maybe we can come up with other words to describe sin. We can call it like misconduct or a misdeed or bad judgment. And we particularly see this in the world. I mean, the word sin rarely enters into the vocabulary in the world, but it's just kind of sad when that happens in the church. And you know, I noticed this word that has crept into the church and we hear it a lot and it's in our songs and a lot of us say it and it's not really a bad word I don't think and I think as far as it goes it's a good word. It's the word broken. Do you notice how often we talk about sin in terms of brokenness? We're broken people. I mean that's true, we are broken people. But why do we wanna say that instead of saying we're sinful people? We can say them both but in some cases, I think brokenness is being brought in as a way of describing sin so that we don't have to say sin. Brokenness, you know, when something's broken, something has happened to it, right? It's been mishandled, it's been dropped, it's been broken, something else has acted upon it and broken it. And sometimes sin does that, that's true. But sin is very different. Sin is not something done to us. Sin is something we have done in defiance of God. That's what sin is. And brokenness doesn't, really capture that. So don't get too hung up on that. I mean, we can still sing songs that talk about brokenness, and I think you can still use that as you talk about it, but don't let that word replace the use of the word sin. What John is saying here is, I'm writing these things to you because I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to fall into sin. I don't want you to disobey God. That's a serious thing, and I'm concerned about it. Isn't it interesting that, I mentioned that in the culture you don't really see this kind of creep in very much, but sometimes you do. Sometimes the word sin enters into it. And you know, lately we've been hearing a lot about the sexual harassment claims and the Me Too movement has been in the news all over the place. And a lot of people have been called out for um, <clears throat> uh, sexual harassment tendencies. Matt Lauer, you know, from the Today Show, of course we heard about that, and he got fired for um, some of his um, conduct in that way. Well, he has a co-host, and her name I think is Hoda Kotb. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but 
um, I found an article where she was talking about Matt Lauer, and she said this. In life, I think, people commit sins. We all do. You do. I have and will again. And I guess the question is, are some sins forgivable, and when does that start? Isn't that fascinating that that question is being asked in secular media? There are some things that are so egregious, some things that are so serious, that indiscretion, a slip of the tongue, crossing the line, those words just don't do it justice. We gotta talk about something that has to do with a defiance of the moral order of the universe. Something that talks about rebellion and transgression against God. Now whether that's what Hoda Kopi had in mind, I don't know, but at least she's using the term, bringing it back in, and causing us to think about it, and not only that, but to begin to ask the question, if sin does exist, is there any way I can be forgiven? Basically what she's saying is, can Matt Lauer be forgiven? Does he have any hope before God? That's a good question. We don't get to that question if we don't talk about sin. So here's John saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. And so my challenge to you, friends, is how do you, how do you deal with sin in your life? What does that look like? When you sin, does your heart respond with some measure of sorrow? Do you have a history in your life, privately, of fighting against sin? What steps do you take to deal with your sin? Do you pray against it? Once it's been revealed in your life, do you take stamp, steps to avoid it? Are, are you at least as concerned about your sin as you are about the sins of others in your family and in your household? Great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said this, though you pass by a thousand idle thoughts and evil actions and you make little of them, if you but knew what the evil of sin was, you would look upon them with amazement and cry out, Lord, what have I done? That's how bad sin is. And it's not something to be overlooked. And John is warning us against it. That's the mark of a Christian. And the first step toward avoiding hypocrisy is we resist sin. Second thing we see here, okay, very basic, right? Very elementary. <laughs> a Christian is a person who obeys God. A person who obeys God. Now, last week, remember that I was pointing out at the end of chapter one that there are certain diagnostic tests that John gives us to evaluate ourselves spiritually. And there are more of these here in this passage, diagnostic tests by which we can evaluate ourselves as to when, whether we're even a Christian. And it's very important that we get these tests from the Bible and that we don't just kind of make them up in our own mind because sometimes people will create their own diagnostic tests. You know, they'll say things like, well, you know, I was baptized once in, in a river and when I came up out of the water, I just had this most unbelievable feeling. And, you know, that's how I know I'm a Christian. Or they'll say, you know, I was in this unbelievably difficult situation and this miraculous series of events happened to deliver me and free me from this situation. It was a miracle. There's no other way to explain it. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Well, they might say, I, I had a dream and God spoke to me and I heard his voice. I heard him saying things to me. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't happen. 
But I'm saying, I, I don't know that the Bible gives those things to us as a diagnostic test by which to evaluate whether we're a Christian. What is that test? Well, let's look at the text. Look at verse three. By this we know, there's the test. You can know, remember that's the name of this whole sermon series, that you may know. Here's a way that you can know that you've come to know him. That is, come to have relationship with God. That you're truly a Christian. Here's how you can know. If you keep his commandments. That's the diagnostic test. Do you obey God? Verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That is our love for God and I think in a sense the love of God in us producing obedience to him and keeping his word. And then in verse 6 uh, no, excuse me, at the end of verse five, here's that phrase again, the diagnostic test phrase. By this we may be sure. Here's how you can have confidence that we're in him, that we know him, that we have relationship with God, that we're Christians. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. So we have these two things here, commands, obeying God's commands, and then walking as Jesus walked. And what John says is if you wanna know you're a Christian, that's got to be in your life to some degree. So what does he mean by commands? Well, a lot of commands in the Old Testament. I think the, the moral law of the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, for instance. Certainly those are commandments that we as Christians are responsible uh, to obey. But notice here that he says, by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments in verse 3. The context there is Jesus. And so I think John also has in mind the commandments that Jesus issued in his earthly ministry. And, you know, Jesus did offer commandments, you know, in his word. Jesus gave law in his word. Not just grace, but law also. Matthew 5 through 7 in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, we see a lot of Jesus' commands. And John is saying, here's how you can know you're a Christian. Are you obeying Jesus' commands? So what does that look like? Well, let's say someone has really offended you and they just cross the line and you are so mad and, and you cannot believe that someone can be that rude and disrespectful to you and you begin to plot revenge. And you know, it's not really an extreme revenge, but you start to think to yourself, I am not going to ever talk to that person again. And when I see that person, I'm gonna look the other way and I'm gonna make sure that person knows that I have no interest in talking. I'm gonna be cold, I'm gonna be distant. And if I have the opportunity to talk to others about that person, I will. And I'm gonna say bad things about that person. I'm gonna undermine that person's reputation every opportunity I get. It's a very natural response to being offended. That, that's the flesh, that's, that's the way our hearts sometimes respond. But let's say then you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you hear that, as a, that that's, a, that's a command from Jesus. Those who are your enemies who have treated you poorly and persecute you, love them. That's a command. The Christian hears that and says, hmm, I, I've got to consider how that plays into this plan of mine to get revenge on this person. And, and you begin to think, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do those things. 
Maybe I shouldn't seek that person's harm. In fact, maybe I should do exactly what Jesus said and pray for that person right now. That, that's what it is to obey God's commands, to obey Jesus' commands. Just a very simple example. Sometimes it takes us longer than others to get to that point. But the person who is a Christian, it, at the very least, is thinking of Jesus' commands, being affected by them, and seeking then to comply with what Jesus says. But then also we get this thing here in end of verse 6 about walking in the same way in which Jesus walks. So what, what does that look like? You know, does that mean we grow a beard, you know, wear a robe, and wear sandals, because all the pictures of Jesus have Jesus looking like that? Is that what that means? Is that how we walk like him? Well, no. It means humbling ourselves, taking the form of a servant, walking the path of suffering, as Jesus did. You know, it's a little more than just a bumper sticker on the back of our car. Um, a little more than uh, adopting a particular social cause. It's walking as Jesus walked, looking at his humility, his service of others, his unflinching submission and obedience to the Father and acceptance of the Father's will for him. That's the way Jesus walked. And what John is calling us is to walk in a similar way. That's the mark of a Christian. Now, I, I know what a lot of you are thinking is, you're calling us to be perfect and I can't do that. Is that what John is calling us to do here? Is he saying that there's no room for failure, there's no room for disobedience, and that we've got to do this perfectly, and if we don't, we're doomed? I don't think that John is calling us to perfection here. Remember verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So he can't have sinlessness in mind. It's the self-deceived person who says he has no sin, but instead, I think what John has in mind here is that the direction and pattern of your life over time reflects obedience to God. The overall direction of your life, that you're, you're moving in the direction of increased obedience to God. You're not there yet. You have a long way to go. You're imperfect. You fail repeatedly, but there's a trajectory that's beginning to be established in your life. That's what John has in mind. We saw um, the play Amazing Grace this past week at Emmons Auditorium. Uh, it's the story of John Newton. Uh, John Newton's the guy who wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And John Newton, you might know, used to be a slave trader. And he was hardened in that task. And he enslaved Africans and was cruel and mean to them. and. There came a time in John Newton's life where the Holy Spirit opened his eyes and softened his heart and he came to be a Christian. He was born again. And as a result of that, he was totally changed and he realized the wickedness and evil of the slave trade. And there's a scene in the play where he goes back to one of the men that he had enslaved and, and treated so horribly and he was looking to this man for forgiveness and that man was reluctant to grant it and what John Newton said was this, it's one of his most famous quotes. He says, look, I am not what I ought to be. In other words, I'm not perfect, and I've got a long way to go, but I'm not what I once was. I, th there's a difference, there's something changing in me, and, and I'm moving in the direction of obedience 
to God's commands. And that's, that's the mark. That's the mark of a Christian. Not perfection, but a general pattern being established. So if I could take our attention back to the quote from Gandhi, um, <clears throat> where he says he doesn't like Christians because they're so unlike Christ. I, I want to show you another passage here. If you look at verse 4, you know, think of this passage um, as you think of this criticism of hypocrisy. It says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, that, that's hypocrisy. That's what he's describing. Someone who says he's a Christian but doesn't obey God. There's a big inconsistency in their living. But what John says is that person is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Are Christians hypocrites? Yes. They can be hypocritical, for sure. All of us can. I can. But does the Bible condone that or support that? Absolutely not. Friends, if this is a concern of yours that, you know, that there's so many hypocrites in the church, I just want to tell you, friends, God, Jesus, Christianity, the Bible is a lot more against hypocrisy than you are. And verse 4 here is an example of this. If, if you want to follow someone who absolutely was never a hypocrite and never will be, follow Jesus. He's the one whose mouth and walk, his words and uh, walk were the most consistent and the most together. The only person who's ever lived who was not a hypocrite is Jesus Christ. So, you know, th these quotes about, or these uh, accusations about hypocrisy, I mean, there, there's truth in them. But don't mistake the presence of hypocrisy in Christians as some kind of allowance or support for hypocrisy among Christians. So, a person who obeys God is one um, who uh, bears the marks of being a Christian. Jerome said this, it's no fault of Christianity that a hypocrite falls into sin. Uh, so one last thing, who, who else, what else describes a Christian? A Christian is also a person who trusts Jesus. Because here we are after hearing all this, you know, we must resist sin and, and we must obey God. I mean, this is when the guilt starts to pile up, right? And we just become overwhelmed with all of the ways that we haven't resisted sin and that we haven't obeyed God. So, I mean, it would be the worst thing in the world for me just to say, okay, let me give you the benediction and send you all home right now. <laughs> but I, I couldn't do that. That would be cruel because we have to finish what this passage says. And if you look at the end of verse 1, there's these wonderful words Second half of verse one, John says, after he says, I'm writing to you, uh, these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, it's like John, John knows that we're gonna sin, that we're gonna fall, we're gonna mess up. We're, just, we're not gonna be able to uphold this standard. If anyone does sin, and then he offers us two things to do. Well, one thing to do is, is look to Jesus. But, but there's two reasons, and, and the first is this. Because Jesus is our propitiation, it says in verse 2. Skip down to verse 2. If anyone does sin, think of Jesus because he is the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a word you might remember. We talked about it in the book of Romans, a big theological word that simply means turning away the wrath of God. 
turning away the wrath of God. God is angry at sin, his wrath rests upon it, but because of what Jesus has done in the shedding of his blood on the cross, he has turned away the wrath of God. He's appeased the wrath of God, and actually through the work of Jesus has turned that wrath into favor for those who look to Jesus by faith. That's what propitiation means. It's a wonderful, a wonderful word telling us about how we're free from the anger and condemnation of God because of what he did to turn away the Father's wrath. Now the passage goes on, doesn't it? And it says something that might sound a little confusing. It says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what does that mean? Uh, it, It would seem to suggest that what John is saying is that Jesus has propitiated, turned back the wrath of God for the sins of every single person who's ever lived. And if that's what he's saying, then the only conclusion we can draw is that everybody is saved. Everybody's going to heaven. And there's a name for that. It's called universalism. And some people adopt that view from verses like this and others in the Bible. Is that what this means? Propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Is everybody saved? And the answer to that is no. A couple of reasons. First is this. A little lesson in Bible reading. You always read the Bible in context. You always allow other passages in the scripture to inform your interpretation of difficult passages like this. And so if we just go to chapter three in the same book, John says, by this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? So in John's mind, clearly there's a difference. There's two groups of people, children of God and children of the devil. Children of the devil are not saved. So in John's mind, clearly not everybody is saved. So that can't be what he means when he talks about propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Probably what he means here, again, thinking of the context, the paganism that existed back then, people had separate gods for all kinds of different needs, the sea god, the sky god, the mountain god, the money god. And what John is saying here is, What God has done in the person of Jesus is the one provision for the propitiation of sins for the whole world. That his atonement is the only hope available from all people of all nations and all cultures and all races. There's only one place to look. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's like if there was a cure for cancer and this medicine cured the cancer of every would, would would cure the cancer of everybody in the world the person might say i have the cure for every cancer patient in the world now by that he doesn't necessarily mean that cure is going to get to every person or that every person would be willing to take it but what he's saying is this is the one hope that all cancer patients have and there's no other place to look and that's what john is saying here about the work of Christ. The commentator Karen Job says this, no one's race, nationality, or any other trait will keep that person from receiving the full benefit of Christ's sacrifice if and when they come to faith. It's a good way of summing up what John means here in verse 2. So that's the one thing you have to look at when you're overwhelmed by guilt. You look to Jesus who has propitiated, turned away the wrath of God on your behalf. But we have one other thing that this passage tells us about Jesus, and that is he is our advocate also. Look at this in verse one. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. When, when you refuse to resist sin, when you fall into disobedience, remember, Christian, you have an advocate. An advocate is someone who comes alongside to assist. That's the definition. An advocate here is kind of like an attorney, a defense attorney. The NIV translates this passage like this. Jesus is the one who speaks to the Father in our defense. That, that's what Jesus does. He resurrected from the dead at the right hand of the Father. When we sin, he pleads with the Father and he says to the Father, don't let that ransom sinner die. My work on the cross is fully sufficient for his acquittal. And so, Father, forgive that person. Now, Jesus isn't trying to change the Father's mind. The Father is the one who sent Jesus to begin with. But Jesus is the one who intercedes on our behalf. The Father is the judge. We have sinned. And Jesus goes in between and he sticks up for us. And he says, we can't judge that person. My death on the cross forgave him and took upon myself the wrath that he deserves. The only just thing we can do, as we learned a little while ago in 1 John, is to forgive that person. And that's what Jesus lives to do for you all the time, interceding before the Father on your behalf every time you sin. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, yeah, we're called to resist sin. Yeah, we're called to obey God. But we also have this advocate who always goes ahead of us. This is such a sweet and wonderful thing. And I kind of had a personal experience with this a little bit just this past week, actually. Um, somebody called me a liar this past week. And it wasn't anybody in this church. It wasn't anybody in my household. Um, it was a neighborhood event involved with a neighborhood association that, that I'm involved in. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I didn't lie. The accusation was to me and actually another person. And so the two of us didn't lie, but the person took it the wrong way and you know, wouldn't back down. And so this was online, and so we're kind of going back and forth, and this person is calling us uh, a liar. And there was another guy in the neighborhood association who stuck up for us. And he wrote a message and he said, I just want everybody to know that I take great exception to these guys being called liars. And I got to tell you, that, that was so sweet to hear. I mean, even though I knew that I was innocent, it was just so wonderful to have somebody stick up, to have somebody go to bat for me. He went to bat for me. He stuck up for me when I was innocent. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. Jesus sticks up for you when you're guilty. When you're guilty. When you haven't resisted sin. When you haven't obeyed God. Jesus still intercedes for you as your advocate who has this propitiatory sacrifice to point to as the sufficient evidence and ground for your acquittal, forgiveness, and relief. So friends, when you're not the spouse you should be, and when you're not the parent you should be, and when you're not the church leader you should be, the elder you should be, the deacon you should be, the ministry team leader you should be, the Bible study leader you should be, the evangelist you should be, when, when you're 
filled with impurity in your thoughts and jealousy in your heart and unbelief and impatience and idolatry and you're just crowded in and you feel like such a lousy Christian. You have an advocate always. Go to Jesus. He will always forgive you. He will always receive you. Take your sins to him. Let him wash them away. Let him bring you close to him so that you can resist sin, so that you can obey God, and so that we can mitigate all accusations that come to us of being hypocrites. Thank God for a Savior who even intercedes for hypocrites like us. That's the good news of the gospel today. Father, we thank you so much for the richness, greatness of your word and the hope that we have in your gospel. Thank you, Father. Um, Help us, Lord, to resist sin in our lives. Help us, Lord, to submit to you. And Father, please turn our attention always to the cross of Jesus where we have been acquitted. In his name we pray, amen.